0: Psalm 79 is written at what was probably the most distressing moment in Old Testament history. Probably shortly after 587 BC, where the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and the last king to set up on the throne was taken away. It is such a striking contrast with how Psalm 78 ended. Psalm 78 ended by mentioning God's choice of Mount Zion that he loved, verse 68, and God's choice of David in verse 70, taking him from the sheepfolds to be the shepherd of Israel. But in contrast to God choosing Mount Zion and God choosing the king from David, when we open up these, this passage, Psalm 79, the temple is destroyed and it's not mentioned about the king specifically, but we know from the historical books that that happened. But let's read the psalm. A psalm of Asaph. God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens. The flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water around about Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors and a scoffing and derision to those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you, and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation." Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. Let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. And deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of your servants, which you, which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you, according to the greatness of your power. Presume those who are do, excuse me, preserve those who are doomed to die. And return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. To all generations we will tell of your praise. Okay, looking at these verses. Verses 1 through 4. The land and temple had been defiled, as we stated. Uh, And again, I I think this was written around shortly after 587 B.C. That's when all these devastating events would have happened. But uh, this psalm is very much like Psalms 44, Psalms 74, Psalm 137, maybe all tied to these times. I think these two especially tied to this time. But the nations invaded your inheritance. I want you to notice the use of the pronoun your to describe those who are victims, the use of the term they to describe those. Who are oppressors? So your they are. Uh, they've invaded your inheritance. They've defiled your temple, and uh, the dead bodies of the servants um, of your servants the flesh of your godly ones. So, God's people are suffering. Even though they have been involved in sin, it's God's people who have suffered. Oh God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. Now, I want you to see that everything that happened was not by accident. But God had warned of these things beforehand. For example, in verse 1, the destruction of the temple. God warned when the temple was built in 1 Kings 9, verses 6-9, in 2 Chronicles 7, verses 19-22, through God warned in these passages of Scripture that if you forsake me and serve other gods that one day this temple will be destroyed and people will come and they will look at this temple and they said what happened to this temple that was built and they said they forsook the Lord the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and they worshipped other gods and God prophesied the temple would be destroyed if if Uh, They were unfaithful. And that was the reason for the temple's destruction. They have defiled your holy temple, but, but here the they would refer to the Babylonians, the oppressors, to the Babylonians in particular. They have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your temple. And I want you to listen to the sadness of these words. They have given the dead bodies of your servants as food for the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones, to the beast of the earth. It was considered a great outrage in Old Testament time not to receive a proper burial. You remember how David and Goliath fought each other in First Samuel 17? And both of them state that I'm going to kill you I'm going to give your body to the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field. Uh, That was stated because that was an insult from a Philistine perspective. That was an insult from an Israelite perspective. Most people in the ancient Near East shared that perspective. But there are going to be so many people that are going to be dying that they won't have enough people even to bury the bodies that litter the ground. I would also say that this statement that your bodies will be given as food for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth, this statement was one of the curses of the covenant. It was a curse of the covenant in Deuteronomy 28 in verses 25 and 26. We're going to see a couple of things throughout this section that were curses of the covenant. What happened is what God said was going to happen. Also, when certain kings were unfaithful, they were warned the same thing, that your bodies will be given to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the earth. You see that in those passages in 1 Kings. They'll be given they'll be they have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. To pour out someone's blood as if its water shows their disregard. The cheapness with which they view human life. And so people have died everywhere. And their blood is cheap. And in verse 4, we have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. Now again, the statement there is a curse of the covenant. That is exactly what God said was going to happen if you're unfaithful to me. If you look up the terms in Deuteronomy 28 verse 37, it doesn't use any of these same words that are used here in Psalm 79 verse 4. But it does convey the same idea. It conveys the same idea. Whether the words be like here... Reproach, scoffing, and derision, or whether they be the words of Deuteronomy 28, they show that God's people were disrespected and mocked and ridiculed. So nothing is going right for these people in verses 1 through 4. And in verse 5, he asks, How long, O Lord? Often when a sufferer sees no end in sight for all of his pain and all of his agony, he cries out like this, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Now when he says, How long? He is not in and of itself Saying that he knows the people did not deserve this. He's not claiming innocence. But what the text does stress, it stresses the duration of God's anger. Will you be angry forever? And the intensity of God's anger. Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? And instead of God pouring out all His anger and all His wrath against His people, He begs that God will pour out His wrath upon the nations. In verse 6, Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you, upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste your habitation. Now we could invoke a lot of passages from Jeremiah for various things that we're looking at tonight. But particularly, this statement in Psalm 79 verses 6 and 7 is very similar to a prayer that Jeremiah prayed in Jeremiah 10.25. Jeremiah 10.25, Pour out your wrath, on those nations who do not know you, and on the families that do not call your name. For they have devoured Jacob, they have devoured him and consumed him, and laid waste his habitation. So you see those words are so similar to here. Now, looking at this text, the word pour out, that's used here in verse 6, is the same word used in verse 3 and verse 10. In verse 3, it was the blood of God's servants that was being poured out like water around Jerusalem. In verse 10, the same idea vengeance for the blood of your servants which has been shed. It's translated the New American Standard. But it's the same word translated poured out. So verse 3 and verse 10 talk talk about them pouring out the blood of the Israelites. They pour out the blood of the Israelites in verse 3 and verse 10. But in verse 6... The request is that God pour out your wrath upon them. What can we call that, Isaiah? Where you have you have the same word used to describe the sin of the nations that is used to describe the judgment of God? What what might you call that? Lex Talionis. Lex Talionis. Lex Talionis. Um, And uh, that's right. So pour out your wrath on these nations who do not know you. God has poured out His anger. He has poured out His wrath upon His people. It seems like it lasts forever. Its intensity is so great. It burns like fire. But pour that out on the nations. Now, I want you to be thinking about this question. Does God answer that prayer? Does God answer that prayer? Just keep that in mind. Okay, verse 8. Do not remember the iniquity of our forefathers against us. He's asking for compassion. He's asking for forgiveness. But do not remember the iniquity of our forefathers. So we started a new column here. For the word forefathers, do your translations have anything else right there? That's what the New American Standard has. Do any of your translations have a different reading? Should I have former
1: iniquities.
0: Former iniquities, is that, and that is the... This
1: is um, New King James.
0: The New King James.
1: The New ESV King, yes, has
0: the New same James. thing, yes, doesn't yes, it? Yes. yes. Former Obiquities. So that is the reading in the New King James and in the ESV. Now I kind of here, and not being the foremost expert on this word, but knowing how it can be translated, I kind of like this translation at this point, and maybe. I do for theological purposes. It is true, it is true that often uh, God accumulated guilt ultimately is poured out upon some generation uh, and they experience the consequences of sin. But uh, what I would say is that this is the closest thing we get to any kind of acknowledgement of sin in this passage. And it wasn't just their forefathers' sin that led to all these disasters. It was their sins. It was their guilt. The word that's used here could be translated first. It could be translated head or chief. It could be translated, former, as it is here. Uh, but I kind of favor uh, the New King James and the ESV here. But whichever way you take it, he is begging God to be merciful. He is begging God to be gracious. And, and he said, while you don't remember our sins He says, let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us, forgive our sins, for your name's sake. Now, there are... there are a couple of important ties with chapter 78. In chapter 78, maybe the most powerful verse to describe the nature of God were verses 38 and 39. Psalm 78, verses 38 and 39. But He, being compassionate, forgave their iniquities. Compassionate, it is from the same root word translated compassion in 79 verse 8. God, being compassionate, forgave their iniquities. Same root word, and it's not the most normal word for forgiveness, but the same word used in verse nine nine. deliver us and forgive our sins. So the word compassion in 79.8, the word uh, forgive in nine nine. Both of these words tied to 78, verse 38. He being compassionate forgave their iniquities, did not not destroy them, but he often refrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. Now look at verse 39. Then he remembered that they were but flesh. There, God remembers their weakness. God remembers their vulnerability. Here, in Psalm 79, verse 8, he begs God, do not remember our iniquities. Remember how weak we are. Remember how frail we are. You notice at the end of verse 8, for we are brought very low. Remember our weakness. Remember our frailty. But do not remember our our sins, show compassion, show compassion, and forgive. And as this psalm indicates, and as Boyd indicated in the beginning, this calls upon God to bring salvation. And God to forgive for the glory of your name and for your name's sake. God, do it for your glory, for your honor, to show what an awesome God you are. Do it for this reason. For your Names say. Now I had down, I have down in my nose all kinds of passages where God is said to act for his name. God acts for the sake of his name, his glory. In his name tied to all he is, his character. Some passages that are really significant. Ezekiel 20 is reviewing the history of Israel and it talks about how over and over God acted for the glory of His name. Then in Ezekiel 36 verses 20-23 through 23, God was going to bring the people back out of captivity for the glory of His name. Now I want you to think about this. And I don't know if I'm going to say this in the best possible way. But after God enters into a covenant with the people of Israel, somehow His name and His glory is going to be tied to how those people are doing. And when they are sinful and wicked and disobedient... They bring reproach on His name. I'm not saying that Ezekiel 36 uses those exact words, but He uses that concept. He uses that concept. His name is blasphemed among the Gentiles, Isaiah 52 and verse 5, because of the wickedness of His people. But when God blesses His people... He is shown to be an awesome and powerful God. Israel is often blessed the way they are, and sometimes judged the way they are, because they are so closely tied with His glory. Kind of happens with us, doesn't it, Mary? That's the argument
1: Moses used over and over too. Exactly. Waiting for mercy, for God, for His own sake.
0: Exodus thirty-two. We're going to say if you let us. Perish in the wilderness that you weren't, you know, strong enough. Yes, exactly. I, I was just going to read the very verse Mary says uh, in response to what she said. Very good comment. Exodus 32, 11 and 12, Moses entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the wilderness and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about the heart that you thought to do to your people. Let's get Exodus 32, verses 11 and 12, and Moses makes the same kind of argument uh, in Numbers uh, chapter 34. Excuse me, Numbers chapter 14 and verse 19 and 20. It's not exactly the same. Uh, but it's the same kind of argument. But like Mary said, Moses has done this same thing before. And I, I believe that Moses doing this same thing is alluded to uh, in Psalm 106 um, Verse 8. 106 verse 8. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. For the sake of his name. Psalm 106 in verse 8 so that is a very good point and, and, and Mary's comment was very helpful and I realize I haven't given you any chance to comment uh, what thoughts do you have what ideas
1: Gary it just really jumps out at me it, it strikes me as odd how Esaph is referring to his, his people as being uh saints and his servants, and he's making them sound like they're just you know, great kids. Yes. Yeah. But they're, you know, God has continually said that they are a stiff necked and hard hearted people. And he's, he's I mean, they, they're, they're constantly pushing him towards a severe whooping.
0: Yes. Yes, you're, you're exactly right.
1: And, and God does like we've just been talking about, he does for his mercy's sake. It's, it's almost like, why didn't I ever make a comment with these guys? They're driving me nuts.
0: Yes. But. Yeah, you're, you're you're exactly right. Uh, the they're people are they're wicked. They are evil. They are doing great wrong. I, I think two parts of it, though...
1: It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just ended the wrong. Okay. <laughs>
0: So none of you all, after making a good point, can throw your head back. So. Um, but I think part of it too is to emphasize to a plea for God's mercy that they're your people, they're your servants. I know they haven't lived it. I know they haven't lived it. Uh, and and yet the amazing thing is that God again still. Listens in a certain respect, in spite of the fact they they haven't deserved this, Debbie. And it's that same compassion that Jeremiah had for the people, yes, Even though they treated him awful, um, and God, and the same compassion, um, Paul
1: had for the, his people, you know,
0: yes, that's exactly right. Oh, um, the other thing about his name, I thought, you know, we can all relate to the way
1: God would feel because we feel the same way about our children. Yes. If they go off and do something wrong, it reflects on us. You know, we think, what if we did wrong? What could we have done differently?
0: Yeah. Um, you know? So, oh, wow. Well, I'm sure everybody You <laughs> know. Do you know um,
1: <laughs> yeah, what, what are people going to think of me? Right. That our, kids our kids you know
0: I, and I know that's true even on a lesser level I, I, I think I can say this in a way that will be very careful and probably not many people here anymore. Um, I was in a meeting uh, several years ago and uh, there were um, some people in the congregation whose child, whose son committed a horrific crime. I'm not just talking about something minor, I'm talking about something that would make the news at the end of the day, kind of like what we have seen this week. And um, can you imagine what parents who are Christians, who have raised their children to be Christians, feel at those moments? I, I, I just cannot imagine. I mean, that family was still coming to services. That family was upbeat and having me to eat with them in the meeting and just pleasant. And yet, I can't imagine when that happened how deeply their heart was broken at that particular event. And um, and he and he did something that. Um, Matter of fact, I'm surprised it didn't get more national attention at the time. And um, here, God is worried about his name. The psalmist is worried about his name. Help us and deliver us and forgive us for your name's sake. And why should the nations say, where is your God? That question... Where is your God? To talk. And we see it several other times. Psalm 42, verse 3. We see those words. Psalm 43, Psalm 42, verse 10. Psalm uh, 115, verse 2 Joel 2 17 Uh, Micah 7 verse 10 These are talks not just against God's people. These are talks against God himself. Why should the nation say where is their God? So the nations were using this as a taunt against Israel and he begs in verse 10, let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of your servants. Um, They do not know your name in verse 6, but a form of that word know is used here. Let them know the vengeance for the blood of your servants which has been poured out. And uh, he begs in verse uh, well first of all any questions any comments there I, I know I could have developed that better than I did but Gary you
1: know, a lot of the times when God pours out his wrath he ends it by saying and they shall know that I am God
0: yes yes and you see that in Ezekiel particularly and
1: I think that falls true even with his people here because the, the nations back then didn't have even evening news to follow but I'm sure that they kept up with what was going on around them? Oh yes, politically. And yes, they had to have known that they were not acting the way that they were supposed to be, and they knew when God was with their people, and He knew they knew when He wasn't. And this was definitely a time when they were going off the rails, and God said, "Okay, I'm done with you." Yeah, well, Amos,
0: a- Amos three uses the picture of the Egyptians and the Philistines, uh, even being called. To learn, to look at the land of Israel and to get lessons from them on how to do wickedness. I mean, it's like these people who are so wicked would be aghast at what God's people do. I think that's around verse 10 and 11 of Amos chapter 3. But uh, the text tells us, but, you, but you're exactly right there, Gary. Any other thoughts? Any other thoughts, Mary? It's just so demanding. They, they want vengeance and they want to right them when they can see it like they're even putting God on their timetable yes yes I know what you yes yes uh, I I know exactly what you're saying that and God was patient with them for a long time <laughs> and um, now they may have to be patient with him but um, Derek Kidner divided this psalm in the four different parts, which is more than most, but I really loved his title for verses 11 and 13. His title for 11 13 was Sighs, Taunts, and Praise. Verse 11 deals with the sighs, the groaning. Verse 12 deals with the taunts, The reproach. And verse 13 ends in praise. The people have been brought very low, he stated in verse 8. And he says in verse 11, Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are doomed to die. Those who were marched off to captivity, who are confident they won't see their homeland again, who may be marched off simply to be killed on the way, according to the greatness of your power, preserve those doomed to die. But here they're groaning, here their moaning, reaches God, begging God to have mercy upon those who groan and those who sigh. In verse 12, verse 12, this is the reproach. And return to our neighbors sevenfold into our bosom. The reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. Oh, they have reproached God's people in verse 4. But here in verse 12, the, the reproaches that they have hurled at God's people are ultimately against God himself. The reproach with which they have reproached you. Oh, Lord. The reproaches with which they have reproached you. Return to them sevenfold. What does that remind you of? What characters in Scripture? Remember, whoever takes vengeance on Cain, sevenfold, suffer sevenfold. Uh, Genesis 4, 14 through 16. Um, giving myself a few verses to be wrong there. But uh, return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach with which they have reproached you. And in verse 13 We, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you and to all generations we will tell of your praise. I know what Mary was saying earlier when she said they want God to take vengeance now, right away. That's true. But the remarkable thing to me is this psalm which began in such depths Ends with the last word being praised. We your people. The sheep. Of your pasture. Now I want you to notice. How common this idea. The sheep of your pasture has been. Recently. Look at Psalm 77. The last verse. Psalm 77. The last verse. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So God's people are a flock. God is leading them. God is the shepherd. But he's doing this by the hand of Moses and Aaron. We get Psalm 78 in verses 70 through 72. The Bible says that God chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds the end of verse 71, to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. In verse 72, so he shepherded them according to the integrity of their heart. So this idea of God being a shepherd was at the end of Psalm 77. It's the end of Psalm 78. It's at the end of Psalm 79. And look at how Psalm 80 opens. Psalm 80 says, O give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, in the midst of the fact that God has brought the Babylonian armies to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. The fact that God has let them go as slaves to a foreign land. And the fact that their king is removed from their uh, land. All these things, they still realize that God is their shepherd. We, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever to all generations, we will tell of your praise. Now, in this prayer, there are there is lament as he pours out his grief. There is imprecatory prayers as he begs God to bring judgment on them. There is prayers for mercy or compassion and statements of praise. All of them intertwined in Psalm 79. Uh, One writer said this, and I thought this was insightful, and uh, I'm trying to find it exactly, but there are some, I'm going to have to remember it because I'm not finding it, but there are some nine statements where he addresses God uh, just pouring out his grief about the people, and there are eight statements where he begs God to judge the nations. And he said some writers will group all those statements together, all those statements together where he pours out his grief to God, and then lump all those statements together where he begs God to judge the nations. But he says that's not the way the Psalm is written. In the Psalm, they're all intertwined. And he said, maybe that shows us something about the way we pray in such times of distress. That we pour out our grief to God and that our mind quickly jumps to judgment upon our enemies. And then we pour out our grief and our mind again goes back to judgment upon our foes. And I thought that was an interesting statement. Now, was that prayer... That God take vengeance on those who poured out the blood of His servants. Is that prayer answered?
1: Was it what?
0: Answered. Answer. Was that prayer answered?
1: Taking vengeance. Yes.
0: It was. Particularly, we say over here, the Babylonians were the ones who did this. And we're going to find... Judgment is going to come on the Babylonians because of their sins. Particularly you see that in Jeremiah 50 and Jeremiah 51. Now, I think a couple of verses very interesting within this. Jeremiah 50, verse 28, Jeremiah 51, and verse 11. Both of those verses specifically tie... Judgment on the Babylonians to the Babylonians' destruction of the temple. Because the Babylonians destroyed the temple, judgment was going to come upon them. Connected with that temple was the destruction of the city, it was pouring out the blood of his servants. But God is going to bring judgment on them because they have brought judgment upon others. They have brought judgment. Upon others. And uh, and upon God's people. And even though God used the Babylonians to bring this judgment. This is no accident of history. God used them to bring that judgment. Still, God's going to judge them for that. Because they didn't do it. Because it was God's will. They did it because it was what they wanted to do. And they
1: did it. Too severely.
0: Too severely, yes. That's right. That's right. What other thoughts do you all have right there?
1: Tommy, would you say again the different kinds of prayers?
0: Okay, you have lament, lamentation. That's pouring out your grief. You find a lot of that, particularly in 1 through 4. You find... Imprecatory, which should be calling down curses upon others, which you see in verses 6 and 7. Uh, You see that in verse 10 and verse 12. So you have laments, you have imprecatory prayers. You have pleading for mercy or compassion. Uh, You see that in verse 5, in verse uh, 8 through 10. You see that. Verse 11, you see that. And then you find statements of praise and thanksgiving, like verse 13, where you find that. So all of these are intertwined in this particular prayer. Thank you. Yes, glad to. Okay. Now, Jesus... in Psalm 79. How does Jesus fulfill Psalm 79? The first thing I thought of was Acts 9 4. Okay. Where Jesus okay. said, why do you... Why do you person... Saul uh, Saul?" Why do you persecute me? The reproaches that were intended for God's people in verse 4 were ultimately against God Himself. Verse 12. That's good. Um, Acts 9, 4. The persecution against God's people Is against God Himself, verse one: Jesus is the temple of the day. Okay. They defile the holy temple. Seventy nine one. They defile. The holy temple. And Jesus said. Destroy this temple. In three days. I will raise it up. And he spoke. Of the temple of his body. Very good.
1: Huh. I guess I was thinking about. The, the other defilement. Where they turned the temple into a. Uh, robber's den.
0: Okay. That, that is true. That's a good point. That in a sense. They defiled the temple there and Jesus cleansed the temple which by the way, let's just use John passages right now. That's, that's what happened right in front of this that led to that discussion. So John 2 verses 13 through 17. Uh, so that is a good point. I hadn't thought about that one. The term servants that's used in verse 2 and verse 10. And it's used in the plural servant. But the singular servant, same word used in the Septuagint, is used of Jesus in Acts 3.13, in Acts 3.26. He is the servant. And he, the Bible uses this term, it talks about how they have reproached God. They reproached him, particularly in verse 12. That term is used of Jesus. The reproaches of those who, those who reproached you have fallen upon me, quotes Jesus is saying. And then Hebrews three thirteen verse 13 the Bible tells us that he uh, has uh, he was bearing the reproach. Hebrews thirteen. He suffered outside the gate, bearing the reproach. I believe is the phrase that you. Amen. Then you now
1: verse nine, where he says, "Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of Your name." Jesus oftentimes evoked. God's name and what he was doing, and he asked God to glorify him that he may glorify him also. God yes. responded it out. That's right.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I almost had to stop you because you were stepping on my point. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to save that for this in a couple of ways. You New know word that's used for poured out. In verse 3, verse 6, verse 10. The word that's used for poured out, the Greek translation, is used when Jesus talks about his blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, as he is instructing about the Lord's Supper. In Matthew 26. In Mark 14. In Luke 20. They poured out the blood of your servant. Jesus' blood is poured out. And like Gary was stating, the glory of your name you to turn with me to some of these passages here in John. Um, John 12, 27 and 28. Now John 12 is after the triumphal entry of Jesus. That's recorded in verses 12 through 19. But in verse 27, Jesus said, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. There came a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Glorify your name, Jesus prays, as he's contemplating the cross. If you doubt that's the context, just start reading around verse 24. And you'll see that very clearly. Glorify your name. He says, I have glorified it. I will glorify it. Look at 17, John 17. In verse 1. Jesus prays. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. In verse 5, now Father glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. Verse 24, Father I desire they also who you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory that you have given me for you love me since the foundation of the world. Now that word glorify is used a lot in these texts but this is the main point. This is particularly these passages are all intimately tied with the cross. God glorifies His name and forgives our sins which is what the request was in Psalm 79, nine. Father, deliver us, forgive our sins for Your name's sake. For Your name's sake. God forgives us forgives us through the poured out blood of Jesus through the cross God brings glory to his name if God shows the glory of his name by bringing those people out of Babylonian captivity to once again go back to Jerusalem and build the temple how much more when they are saved from sin by Jesus death Mary
1: Uh, verse 11 The groaning of the prisoner come before you. Jesus came to set the captives free. Very good. Verse
0: 11. uh, Luke.
1: Preserving those who are appointed to die. Through his sacrifice he gives us all life.
0: Yes, that's right. So the prisoners among those set free in Luke 4. Verses 18 and 19. Very good. Hey Gary, I might have cut you off. Did you have anything more to add? Because I, because I did. I wanted to preach it first. You know? I'm not sticking with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I guess the amazing thing to. Reflect on all of this. Jesus experiences all the shame and reproach and disgrace and pain and agony and death that the people of Israel felt because of their sins. He experiences it because of our sins. And God in the person of Jesus has taken upon himself our sins and guilt so that we could be forgiven. It's just amazing to think about. Anything else? Thank you all for being here. Thank you. You want to lead us in
1: prayer hearing? Sure. Our dear and precious Father, who art in heaven above, we once again humbly and gladly bow our head before Thee, recognize and to Thee, our one and only true, living and merciful God. We're thankful, Father, for the quiet time that we've got to spend here and studying Your Word, and the, the great reminder it is to us is to. All that you are and all that you're not. We're ever so thankful that you are such a great and loving and merciful and forgiving God. That you've made a way for us, for your people, for your creation, even though along the way we brought such great pain and discouragement and defilement to you. And yet you you still reached out to us when we were yet enemies and made a way for us to be part of your family. It's hard for us to comprehend such great love dear father we pray that you'll help us to keep all of these things in mind in and, and perspective in our daily lives as to who we are and what we need to be about help us to reciprocate our love and obedience and thankfulness in being about your your work dear father of telling them telling others of your goodness and of The promise of eternal life that you've offered to us through your son's precious blood. Thank you, Father, for Tommy and for his love for you and his love for your word and his willingness to take the time and to to travel and to preach wherever he can and whenever he can. Help us all to encourage one another as we see the day approaching, Father. In your son's name we pray. I You're glad you're here.